who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. With that said, if you have your Bibles, if you can open with me, please, to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and this morning we begin a new series um, that will take us on a journey through the Apostles' Creed or what you just heard. Yet, for some of us, I know you might have no idea what that is. And let me just give you a brief summary of the Apostles' Creed, and then we're going to kind of jump in this. So, the Apostles' Creed is not found in the Bible. Um, The Apostles' Creed was not even written by the Apostles. Um, It was written by the early church as kind of a summary of what the Apostles believed and what they taught. Um, Many scholars put the earliest form of the Apostles' Creed at around 120 A.D., making it the oldest of the Christian creeds that we have. And in the early church, to uh, say the word credo, which means I believe, was to identify kind of in the closest way possible with the gospel. And often uh, new believers, before they were baptized, they would have to say the Apostles' Creed, and then they were baptized, and um, they were welcomed into the fellowship of the saints. And just understand this, when the early church, especially in that uh, second century, when they recited this creed, it was simultaneously their greatest act of rebellion, yet at the same time it was their greatest act of allegiance. So in one standpoint, it was an act of rebellion. They were rebellion. They were rebelling, excuse me, against um, the Roman Empire, against the Roman declaration that Caesar was Lord, um, and there was no God but Caesar, and they were rebelling against that. At the same time, they were um, coming together, being united together by what they believed. And I think in both senses, we need in a fresh and a new way, we need as God's people to rebel against the popular and secular narrative that we're hearing over and over and over in our day, while at the same time, we need to be reminded what unites us as God's people. We need to be reminded what we believe. And I know this is going to be a different study for a lot of us. Um, And let me just explain why. How many of you grew up in liturgical churches where you recited the Apostles' Creed every week? So a few of us, how many of you grew up in a Baptist church where you were taught from the very beginning there is no creed but the Bible? So most of us, so um, we have these two different thoughts. And so for those of you who grew up reciting the Apostles' Creed, you're probably pretty excited right now going, this is awesome, this is taking me back. Um, For those who grew up in the Baptist church where um, you were taught you do not repeat creeds, you do not say creeds, you're probably trying to figure out right now whether I'm committing the unpardonable sin and whether you should stand up and throw a hymnal at me and shut this whole thing down. So uh, we have these two different thoughts are concerned, but I think it's important to know that I have no intention of, of preaching the creed, but rather using the creed to proclaim the word of God. And what I mean by that is this, creeds do not hold any authority on their own, but Rather, they point outside of themselves to the authority of 
the word of God. Or, or think about it like this. Have you ever been um, in darkness so complete, so thick, that you could not even see your hand in front of you? And it didn't matter how long you were there. Um, no amount of time would allow your eyes to adjust where you could see. It was just complete and utter darkness. And then think about being in that place, that place of darkness, and then having moonlight. You would have some sort of, of light. But then imagine being at that same place um, on a sunny day. All of a sudden, things change. You see things you didn't see before. And so the, the picture is this. The word of God is the sun. The Apostles' Creed is the moon. It's not the source of of light. As the moon reflects the sun, and if you don't know that, then ta-da, the moon reflects the sun. It has no light of its own. It's a reflecting light in the same way the creed, the Apostles' Creed, merely reflects the truth of Scripture. It takes the truth of Scripture that shines on it, and it shines that out. So God's Word is the sun, the, um, our, our source of truth. The Apostles' Creed is um, the summary of that truth. So this morning, we are going to unpack the first two words of the Apostles' Creed, which are these two words, I believe. I believe. And let me just squash something real quick from the very beginning of what a lot of people assume to be Christian belief. A lot of people will tell you that what Christian belief is, is basically what we do is we jump um, from the light into um, the darkness of the unknown, and that is Christian belief. So we're jumping from the light of all that we know into um, darkness and, uh, of the unknown, and that's Christian belief. But no, Christian belief is about us jumping from the darkness of sin into the light of God. And that is Christian belief. We're jumping from darkness into light, into what God has revealed about himself. So we're going to be unpacking this together. And let me just say from the beginning of the study, the, the format I'm using and a lot of the information I'm using comes from um, Pastor Matt Chandler and a study that Lifeway Christian Resources um, did just to give credit where credit is due, just to kind of put this in a format that um, is able for us to be able to walk through it together as a faith family over the next 12 weeks. But we're going to start in Romans chapter 10. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read verses 9 and verse 10 together and then dive into this. So beginning at verse 9, it says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today. God, before your word, recognizing your word is the ultimate authority. Your word is the Son. And Father, this creed is reflecting what your word declares. Lord, we want to, we are asking in this moment through this series that you would unite us together as your people around, Lord, what we believe. God, unite us in that around, Lord, this is what we believe. We know what the world is saying, Father, but we know what the world is saying is not true. And we know, Lord, that what your word tells us is true. And Father, we want to bank our lives on that. Unite us, Father, around your word, around your truth. Encourage us as your people. 
Lord, just speak to us, we pray, through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And we may be seated. So when we think about those words, I believe, we have to put it in context of where we live. And just think about the, the skepticism and the unbelief that exists in, in our day, in our age, and even in our nation. And then we add to the unbelief, um, professing, and please look at me when I say this, professing Christians um, who seem to share more of the world's views than they do basically a biblical view. This week, I was introduced to a massive survey that was done by Ligonier Ministry and also um, assisted by Lifeway Christian Resources. And it was called, um, What is Our Theological Temperature? And what the, the survey desired to do was to find out what um, the average American as well as the average professing Christian actually believed about God, salvation, the Bible, the church, and other what we would call fundamental um, beliefs of Christianity. But what the survey found out was that many, many self-professing um, evangelicals, many professing Christians actually reject what we would call fundamental evangelical beliefs. Or meaning they, would, they reject what we would call um, biblical and historical Christianity, yet they still call themselves Christians. So you ask yourself, um, well, does, if you call yourself Christian, does that make you a Christian. And of course, we live in a day and age where if you call yourself anything, we're told that it means you must be that, right? Because whatever you call yourself, you must be. But the Bible would say, um, no, something completely different. But the survey revealed a very significant confusion regarding so many things, regarding, first of all, the doctrine of God. A large number of professing believers deny that Jesus is fully God. They believe the Holy Spirit is a force and is less divine than Jesus and God the Father. And of course, it gets worse. Over half of professing believers believe that they have to individually contribute to their own salvation. Almost half do not believe that even the smallest sin against God is deserving of his divine wrath. The survey also revealed that more than half of professing believers think the Bible, um, or, or, or le less than half, excuse me, believe that the Bible is actually the word of God and that it is altogether true. That same number reject what the Bible teaches on ethical and moral issues. And then finally, of course, the survey revealed that many professing believers um, believe that it is just as valid to worship alone by yourself than attending corporate worship in the church. So we're talking about very muddy waters here between people who profess to be Christians and their beliefs actually lining up with the word of God. I had somebody I was talking to a few weeks back and they said, I'm a Christian. I just don't believe in the word of God. And I said, I'm sorry, but you're not a Christian. You, you can't make up. You know, we don't get to define the terms of our Christianity. We the whole picture of Christianity is we have to come to God on his terms. We cannot come to God on our terms. We have to come to God on, on his. But we live in this picture of so many muddy waters. And one of the reasons why we need to do a series like this is to remind us, God's people, of the beliefs that make up biblical, historical Christianity, beliefs that unite us together as God's people. So what I want to do in the time that we have remaining is we're going to unpack four truths concerning biblical and corporate or Christian beliefs that unite us together as God's people. So the first is this. True biblical belief is 
foundational. So the first truth is this. True biblical belief is foundational. What I mean by that is this. It's foundational for salvation. So having a right belief is foundational for us to be saved, but it's also foundational for spiritual health. If we aren't believing the things that are true, we're not going to grow spiritually. We're not going to be in good spiritual health. And Romans 10, 9 and 10 points us to this picture. We have to believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead and that God's word is true. We have to, it says, with the heart one believes and is justified and, of course, is saved. And it seems strange that the creed would begin with the words, I believe, instead of the words, I know. Think about this. Why, why wouldn't the creed begin by saying, this is what I know? Why would it begin by saying, I believe? And what I, I think is, it's important because belief is what normally leads to action, not knowledge. And let me just show you what I mean by that. Many people in the world that we live in know that it's dangerous to text and drive. They know it's dangerous but they still do it. Why? Because they don't believe that something bad can happen to them. So there's a difference between knowing something that's as bad as bad for other people and believing that it could be bad for me. And so we live in this picture where this is kind of prevalent and ongoing. And so what we have here is a belief, according to Romans 10, a belief that leads to salvation, that Jesus is, is Lord and Accompanied by a confession, that, that confession, Jesus is Lord. In fact, do you know what the first unofficial creed in the Bible was? The first unofficial creed in the Bible was that three-word sentence, Jesus is Lord. Uh, the, the Christians lived in a day and age where Rome, their, their confession, the Roman confession was Caesar is Lord. There is no God but Caesar. And Christians came on the scene and they, living in Rome, had to say, no, that is not true. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that was their declaration. That was um, their, their form of, no, we will not believe what you say. We will not accept this. This is what is true. So this was a declaration of rebellion. But just think about this. Over time, the rebellion has died down. And what has taken its place is assimilation. We have just assimilated to what the world teaches us. Um, must be true. In fact, just think about how many professing believers think about getting saved. So let me just lay before you what many people, how many people believe salvation or what many people believe salvation looks like. Many people believe a person just suddenly realizes on their own that they don't want to go to hell, so they approach Jesus and ask him not to send them to hell. And of course, Jesus says, okay, I'm not going to send you to hell. I'm going to write your name in the land's book of life, and here is your certificate of salvation. So that's how most people believe in salvation. So whenever you doubt your salvation, you just pull out your certificate that Jesus gave you, and that should be enough to give you hope for the moment and forever. But here's the problem with that. First of all, the scenario is based on a faulty view of what our most important need is. In fact, one great theologian, A.W. Pink, said it like this. There has been a complete underrating of the desperate case and condition of the sinner. Very few indeed have faced the unpalatable fact that every person is thoroughly corrupt by nature and that they are completely unaware of their own wretchedness. That is why so many are fatally deceived 
For there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire who have no desire to be delivered from their own sin. Just think about that. So the second issue is that even those who have acknowledged their own sinfulness, um, Satan has so suddenly convinced us that somehow our salvation depends on a prayer that we have prayed or how much we know or how we feel at any given moment in time. And Satan attacks that so much. He attacks, well, did we mean the prayer? Okay, let me pray it again and let's see if I mean it. Or, well, I don't know enough. I don't understand this. So this must, must not be true. Or I don't feel saved in this moment, so I must not be saved. And Satan attacks us in all of those areas. He's definitely good at, at that. But that's not how the Bible depicts salvation. So reimagine this whole picture of coming to Jesus. So we come to Jesus, but this time when we come to Jesus, we do so, first of all, acknowledging our sin. We understand that we have sinned against him, a holy God. And we also come to him understanding our inability. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot do it. We are unable to save ourselves. So we come to him, and instead of asking him for a certificate of salvation, we instead say this. We say, we believe what your word says about who you are, and we believe what your word says about what you have done for us on the cross. That Jesus, you lived a life that we could not live, a life of perfection. That you died a death that we could not die, a death for the sins of the world, and that you conquered an enemy that we could not conquer, even the grave. And we say we believe that, and then we jump into his arms we hop into his arms that are extended to us and now we depend on him to hold us forever that is the picture brothers and sisters of salvation we are not putting the weight upon ourselves or what we do we are leaning all of our weight upon who christ is and what christ has done for us so and then in that moment, if we begin to struggle with our salvation, we don't have to go back and think about what, what did I do 10 years ago. No, we think about where we are right now, resting in the arms of the one who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. So biblical belief, the foundational belief, is resting your weight in who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. So the message of Christianity is not what we have to do. The message of Christianity is what has already been done for us. In fact, three beautiful words. It is finished. Jesus said it is. He's, he's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. That is the foundational belief, biblical belief of our salvation. So biblical belief is foundational. Then second of all, biblical belief is personal. It's personal. So what I mean here is that First and foremost, saving belief is based on not what your family has believed. It's not based on the fact that your grandfather was a pastor, that your parents were great Christians, that your aunt was a missionary somewhere. You are not born into salvation. According to the Bible, you are born again into salvation. Notice in John 3, Jesus didn't say you must be born. Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again. You must be born again. So you have to have an, a personal encounter with Jesus where you lean 
your life, not someone else's life, upon who he is and what he has done. Just think about Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus comes to his disciples. They have seen so many things, and he says to them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So he comes to them, and he says, who are people? Who do people think that I am? And, of course, the disciples begin to say, well, some think you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Others believe you're Elijah, the powerful prophet. Others believe you're Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, or just one of the prophets. So a lot of different beliefs about who Jesus is. But then Jesus looked at them and said, basically, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Personally, who do we believe Christ to be? You know, the, the Apostles' Creed begins with the words, I believe, and not we believe, because true belief is always personal. It has to begin with you. It has to begin in your heart. This past Wednesday, as Brother Frank mentioned earlier, America's pastor, Reverend Billy Graham, uh, changed addresses, which is his own words. He changed addresses. But what many don't know about um, Reverend Graham, and maybe you've heard this over the last few days, is there was a time early on in his ministry where he had a crisis of belief. It almost completely derailed him and his ministry. The story is told in the late 1940s, um, the Reverend Billy Graham attended a conference in California. Some, um, while he was there, some young theologians were also there who were expressing doubt in the authority of the Bible. And among those young theologians was one of Graham's close personal friends and even a fellow evangelist whose name was Chuck Templeton. As they talked in the meeting, Chuck openly mocked Billy Graham and basically said this, Billy, you're 50 years out of date. People no longer accept the Bible as being inspired the way that you do. Your faith is too simple. You need to change it. And Chuck's comments were not just painful. They shook Reverend Billy Graham to the very core. In fact, in his, in his biography, he said this, Suddenly, in that moment, I wondered if the Bible could be trusted completely. And then listen to what he writes in his um, autobiography and just listen to the personal nature of this. He says, That night, I walked out in the moonlight, my heart heavy and burdened, Drop into my knees there in the woods. I opened the Bible at random on a tree stump in front of me. I could not read it in the shadowy moonlight, so I had no idea what text lay before me. I could only stutter in prayer. Oh God, there are many things in this book I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. I can't answer some of the philosophical and psychological questions Chuck and others are raising. And he says this, I was trying to be on the level with God, but something remained unspoken. At last, the Holy Spirit freed me to say these words. Father, I'm going to accept this as your word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. And he says this, When I got up from my knees, I sensed the presence and power of God as I had not sensed it in months. 
Not all of my questions were answered, but a major bridge had been crossed. In my heart and mind, I knew a spiritual battle in my soul had been fought and won. Brothers and sisters, don't, don't lessen this picture of, yes, there's doubts. Yes, there's things about God we, we don't understand. If we understood everything about God, he wouldn't be God. If you could define God on a bumper sticker, he wouldn't be worthy of our worship and praise. But he's worthy of our worship and, and praise. But here's the point. I know a lot of people that come to me and say, well, I just can't get over. There's so many things in the Bible I just don't understand, so I don't read it. And what I always tell them is this. Begin by obeying what you know. Obey what you know the Bible says. Don't get caught up in, I don't understand this, I don't understand that, I don't understand this. If you're looking for an excuse not to believe in God, Satan will give you one. He'll give you one every day of the week, every hour of the day. But believe what you know the Bible says, and as you believe that, God will open before you greater and mightier things. And all of a sudden, you'll realize this is who God is. So have you come to a place that you've made a decision like Billy Graham did, where you you might not understand every detail, but you have put your personal confidence in God and in God alone. Before we can say we believe, you have to say, I believe. I believe. So biblical, true biblical belief is not just foundational. It's not just personal. Third, biblical belief is communal. It's communal, meaning, yes, belief is personal. It, must be personally found in each one of us, but there's also a communal value to it, meaning it's something that we do as a community of believers. Something amazing happens as we, the people of God, come in to this place of worship as we gather here, and not only are we doing this for our own spiritual value, we're encouraging each other in this time. There's something amazing that takes place. In fact, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. I have a little bit of it written on the screen, but I wasn't able to include all of it. So this morning I said, you know what, we got to get all of this. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, there's an amazing picture that is written. And the words that are used, I believe, are used purposefully. Beginning at verse 22, so Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 22. When you get there, let me hear you say. Amen. And it says this, verse 22, let us, us, it didn't say let me, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So what are we doing as believers? We're drawing near to God with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. So we're holding fast to our confession of faith. We're reminding each other when we meet together that God is faithful to keep his promises. Look at verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. We're considering how we can encourage each other. This isn't just about me. This isn't just about my little group. I'm trying to think about how can I encourage you? How can I encourage someone else? And then look at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together. So we want to Understand the value of meeting together, the value of coming together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the Bible says that as, as we see the day when Christ's return is 
as, as near as we see that, we want to do all these things more, not less. And just follow with me here. There is a uniting factor to shared belief. Coming together, reminding ourselves that we, what we believe together, but it also goes deeper. I don't, I don't know how, if I can get your, your minds around how big this thing is that we're a part of. How big this thing is. We're a part of a people who go back all the way to the beginning of mankind. I don't know if I can get us to understand that reality. When God very first called a people to himself, and we are a part of, of that. We're a historic people. Throughout history, God's people have continually worshipped God. And we're a part of that continuing tradition of worshiping God. So we're a historic people. We're also a global people. This weekend, all around the globe, God's people are meeting together, believing what we are declaring, rejoicing in this and who God is. We're part of something global. That's why we say all the time we, we exist in a world. And, and God, when, when we think just us, God thinks the world. And we, we want to reach the not just our community, but the world for the gospel and for uh, God's sake. But you and I have been woven into something so much bigger than us. It's diverse. It's beautiful. It's global. It's not new. When we're, we're running this race that other faithful brothers and sisters have run before us, these things that we're facing aren't just new to us. And what the Apostles' Creed does is it connects us to the community of brothers and sisters throughout the beginning of the Christian faith, connects us to them, shared belief. It also humbles us. This is what we believe. This is what they believe. In fact, this is what they gave their lives for. This is what they believed and gave their lives for. It humbles us in that it encourages us to keep going and not grow weary. Ultimately, when all is said and done, the family is just bigger than we think it is. It's just a whole lot bigger. You ever gone to your family reunion and say, I don't even know who these people are. You know, I have no idea who these people are. And it kind of gets weird and awkward. We are a part of a family of God that's so much bigger than we could ever begin to imagine. It's historical, it's global, and we are caught up in it. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. May we not forget that, what God is doing, not just here, what God's doing in the world that he has made. Biblical belief is communal. And then lastly, lastly, biblical belief is beneficial. It's beneficial. And I know this is kind of like the duh statement, but true biblical belief is beneficial, not just because it leads to eternal life, and it does. Think about one of the most well-known verses, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. Biblical belief is beneficial because it leads to salvation, but it's also beneficial because it leads to our confidence. We are able to have a humble confidence in who God is and what he has done. I think about the, the words of 2 Timothy 1.12. In fact, we just sang, um, basically, we just sang uh, this verse right before I got up to preach. But it says this, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. 
And I am persuaded or convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. There is great benefit, brothers and sisters, in what we believe in making sure, or let me say this again, there is great benefit in us choosing as a people of God to believe this. Not in just believing whatever we want to believe. There's great benefit in us choosing to believe what God has called us to believe. And what we're going to do, I'm going to let you kind of stay seated for this, but we are going to recite this creed together. And every week we're going to do this together. Again, we're not doing it because this creed has authority. We're doing it because this creed points us to the authority of God's word. And as we say this, I just want you to think about how beneficial this creed is to us as believers. And there's a couple things in here that are going to, um, when we get to uh, the week, um, a, a few weeks from now, when we uh, kind of dissect this picture of he descended into hell, um, that's going to be a fun week for us. And we're going to maybe go a direction that maybe some of you weren't expecting us to go there. Or when we get to the picture of the Holy Catholic Church. And understand the Holy Catholic Church, the word Catholic does not mean Roman Catholic. The word Catholic means universal. So we're talking about the universal picture. What, what we just said, what we're caught up in, um, is so much bigger than us. It's the universal church. It's the global, historic church that we are caught up in. So let's, let's recite this together. And as you do this, as we recite this together, just think about how beneficial it is for us as the people of God to believe this. So just join me in this. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Just think about how beneficial it is for us to say, I believe in God, our Father. He is our Father. He's a good, good Father. He's our creator. He's our sustainer. We believe in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. In fact, he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we believe that. We believe that. We believe in the Holy Spirit who is our comforter who is the one who enlightens us into truth the only reason we see truth is because the holy spirit opens our eyes he illuminates truth to us we believe in the universal church we believe in communion among saints and praise god we believe in the forgiveness of sins there's benefit in that oh we believe in the forgiveness of sins not just the fact that christ has forgiven us but that we are also called to forgive one another let's amen that uh, forgiveness of sins and we believe in life everlasting there's benefit there so this this creed begins with two simple words i believe let me just end this morning by saying this or asking this do you do you believe have you believed 
Will you believe? Will you believe? I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand, and we're going to call musicians, Brother Frank Ford, for this time of invitation and consecration, where we ask that if God is speaking to your heart, that you do what he says. And I don't know what God's doing in this moment. For some of you, this is a moment where God is anchoring your heart to a belief that you know is true. God's anchoring you in this moment. You know this is true, but this is an anchor for you. Others of you in here, maybe this is a, a moment where God is saying, you know what, I, I, this whole picture of Billy Graham is resonating with me. There's things I'm struggling with that um, struggle with to believe and needs to get to a point where I just choose whether I'm going to believe it and going to believe who he is or not. And I, I pray that you would choose to believe as Billy Graham did that, God, I'm going to believe you, and I'm going to believe your word. And I don't understand it all. I don't understand everything that happens in this world, but I, I believe you, and I believe what you say. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you, and God, you are so good to us. You are a good father. We're going to see next week. You're so good, your creator, your sustainer, Father. Lord, just remind us of that. Remind us, God, of our belief in Jesus and what he has done for us. And that our salvation, we find assurance not in trying to remember what we have done, but we find assurance in remembering that we are in this moment believing and trusting in what Christ has done for us. Father, I pray for any person in this room or who will be in this room later who is struggling right now with belief. God, I pray right now, Lord, that you would open their hearts and their minds, Father. Lord, maybe they're having a crisis of belief as we talked about, and Lord, may this be the moment. May this be the holy moment that they say, I don't understand it all. I have questions that seem huge and can't even answer them, but yet, God, I believe. I believe in you. I believe in your son. I believe in who you are. I believe in your word. God, I pray that this would be a victorious moment today. Oh, God, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for what you've done for us. And we thank you, as we said from the beginning, that Christian belief is not about us jumping out of our light into some kind of unknown darkness. Lord, that's not Christianity. Lord, Christianity is us jumping out of the darkness of our sin into your marvelous light. God, I just pray that that would happen today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.